Merry Christmas, everybody. Good morning, and uh, welcome everybody here in Waukesha, welcome in Pewaukee and online and wherever you might be, and uh, thank you so much for uh, making River Glen part of uh, your Christmas. Let's hear it for Christmas. You guys excited about Christmas? Yeah. It's an exciting time of the year. I'm really excited uh, that you're here. And uh, hey, before I get started, I want to mention our uh, welcome cards and seat back in front of you. And uh, we'd love for you to fill one of those out, especially if you're new. We're here to serve you. And uh, let us know if you have any questions, if you have any uh, prayer requests. Maybe there's some situation in your life where you could use prayer. We take this seriously. We've got a prayer team and our staff and leaders. We pray for the requests that people make. And so let us know. Uh, how we can continue to pray for you. You can just put that in the offering bag a little bit later on in the uh, service. Uh, Well, I want to begin, and I want to ask you to think about your Christmas tree tradition. I think everybody's got a tradition uh, in your family when it comes to the uh, Christmas tree. I heard a a, a message about this by a pastor named Levi Lusco that uh, really uh, impacted me and formed the basis for what I want to share with you today, because all of us have a Christmas tree tradition, and it really comes down to a choice. You're either going to do the fake tree, or you're going to do the uh, real tree, and I know this can be a powerful issue, and people sometimes disagree in families about this, and uh, so I want to I be sensitive uh, to that. Okay, don't storm out of here, okay? No fighting on this, but uh, show of hands, how many are fake tree? Fake tree people, uh, show of hands. Okay, how many are real tree people? Yeah, okay, yeah, some real tree uh, uh, people in here. You know, some of you, you know, are like this. You're like, you know, fake tree, fake Christmas. And so you're real tree. Uh, my wife uh, believes that way. And so in our house every year, uh, that's, that's, what, that's what we have. Uh, we, my wife and I kind of disagree on this, but uh, she, she believes in the uh, real tree. And so that's what we have, just like Joseph and Mary had in the stable, um, obviously, uh, the real tree. <laughs> Now, there are different ways of going about getting that real tree. Some of you probably get the saw out, you go out to a tree farm, maybe you go somewhere, and you cut down your own tree, and uh, you, know, you go trudging through the snow, and uh, it's so cold you can't feel your legs, but you're having a good time, and uh, you, you want to kill that one tree, okay? And uh, you're happy if you make a squirrel family homeless. And then other people want a real tree, and they're like, I don't want to cut it down. You go to a parking lot, you shop for one. And, uh, you, you know, you're like the person who, who says, I want a hamburger, but I don't want to meet the cow. Uh, you outsource the chopping of the tree. Let somebody else do that uh, dirty work. So real tree people, and then there's fake tree people, and uh, I'm with you, all right? I'm, I'm in your number. It's the easiest option. It's the laziest option. You just walk out to the garage. You walk down to the basement. Grab the box where you put the tree from uh, last year, but my wife says, I like the smell of the real tree. Listen, I've got you covered. They make scented ornaments, and it makes the fake tree smell like the uh, real tree, and fake tree is safer, okay? Uh, Real tree's a fire hazard. That's like having a bucket of gasoline plugged into the wall. I'm I'm just trying to protect you uh, here. One more Christmas tree tradition. What do you put on the top? How many put a star on top of the tree? Okay, how many put an angel on top? How many just go natural? Nothing, nothing. That's what we do. Yeah, okay. Everybody's got a Christmas tree tradition, but at some point, uh, we'll, we'll sit down maybe with a mug of hot chocolate as a family, hopefully, and maybe we'll put on some Bing Crosby, some Frank uh, Sinatra. If you've got some kids, maybe Alvin and the Chipmunks, and uh, we'll just admire that Christmas tree. And maybe you talk about the Christmas story, Joseph and Mary, the, the shepherds, the wise men. It's just a beautiful story. A charming story, but here's something that we need to fight to remember, and that is Christmas looks better 
from a distance. I mean, it looks great on Christmas cards and nativity sets, but the reason is because we're not in the story. I don't think anybody in the story would have called it beautiful or charming. Think about it. The, the, the wise men had to sneak home a different route because of a crazy, insecure king who started killing babies, as many as he could, trying to get Jesus. And that's why the angel told Joseph to take Mary and the baby and escape to Egypt for, for safety. And Mary's pregnancy created great turmoil. There was, there was a fear that the zealots would accuse her of adultery, and they could have had her stoned to death. And Joseph even quietly decided to divorce her until an angel spoke to him. And even when he decided, okay, I'll go along with it, I'll marry her, the stigma of Mary's pregnancy, it followed Joseph and Mary and Jesus for the rest of their lives. So the Christmas story looks great on Christmas cards and in nativity sets. And you might think, you know, that your life has to be perfect you know, to have a good Christmas, but the first Christmas was far from perfect. I, I can assure you that Christmas looks better. That first Christmas looks better from a distance, but you know what? They still had great joy, and that's not even the beginning of the story because when we talk about Mary and Joseph and the uh, angels and the shepherds, that's Matthew, that comes from Matthew chapter 2, that comes from Luke chapter 2, and one comes before 2. Really, the Christmas story begins in Matthew chapter 1. Here's how it begins with the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of uh, David. Now, maybe some of you are familiar with this section of Scripture. Maybe some of you, I would bet maybe some of you decided, I'm going to try reading the Bible. And so you start in Matthew because it's the first book in the New Testament. And you read this genealogy and it's just a list of names. It's like reading the phone book. And you got bogged down. You know, you got, you got bored. And so you quit. If you have insomnia, try reading the uh, genealogy. And, uh, you know, it might cure your problem. But today, I want to show you just a few verses. And I think you're going to agree. This is actually one of the most amazing and surprising scriptures in the entire Bible. This is the beginning of the Christmas story, the genealogy of Jesus. Verse 3 says, Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. King David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And, this is, this is, and they're all listed out in Matthew chapter 1. You know what this is? You know what this is, Matthew chapter 1? This is the family tree of Jesus. This is the bloodline of Jesus. Jesus would say, this is how I got here. This is generation after generation after generation that eventually led to me. And you're like, okay, but uh, why do we need to know this about Jesus? Because we live in a culture today where genealogies and ancestry, that's just a hobby. That's just a, a novelty. Maybe you go to Ancestry.com and have some fun trying to figure out about your ancestry. But in Jesus' day, this wasn't for fun. This was a really big deal. In fact, the best way I can describe for you the power of the genealogy, the power of your bloodline is to say that it was your resume. It was like your portfolio at work. Because in the ancient world, your ancestry, your bloodline would help you get a job. It would open doors for you. It would get you in the right circles. It would get you in the right conversations. And so your genealogy was huge. It would qualify you or disqualify you for certain roles. And it was really, really important 
for the Messiah. People viewed this Messiah like a Superman figure. He would come and he would change everything. He would redeem the world. He would save the world. Matthew presents Jesus as the Messiah. But to qualify for Messiah, you had to fulfill a lot of criteria. The Old Testament gives like 700 prophecies the Messiah would fulfill. And one of those prophecies says he will be related to David. And so if somebody cannot connect himself to David, eh, can't be the Messiah, it's got to be somebody else, your resume does not qualify you for that role. And Matthew writes to a Jewish audience, and without a genealogy, la, 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 they're not even going to listen to someone if he's not related to David. So Matthew not only connects Jesus to David, he goes all the way back and connects him to Abraham. But that is where the family tree of Jesus, it stops making sense. Because Matthew only needed to prove Jesus came from David, and he goes much further. He goes to Abraham. And Matthew didn't need to be as honest and transparent as he was. What I'm trying to say to you is that the family tree of Jesus has twisted branches. And Matthew doesn't hide that fact. In fact, he flaunts it. You should also know that back then, they would uh, leave stuff out of their family tree. Kind of like people leave stuff out of their resume. All of us probably have parts of our resume that we wouldn't want our new boss to see. You know, you want to put your best foot forward, and so you don't want your new boss talking to that previous boss, maybe a job where you, I don't know, you stormed out, you didn't show up, uh, you didn't call. And so people leave stuff like that out. They leave gaps in their resume, not, not any of you people here today, not this crowd. I'm talking about people from another church, okay? None of you uh, have anything in your past that you want to keep in your, in your past, uh, obviously. But some people, I'm told, will leave stuff out of their resume. And back then, people would leave stuff out of their genealogy, and they would just have the big milestones represented. But the genealogy in the Christmas story, the family tree of Jesus does the opposite. Let's start with verse 5. Let me show you a name here that is a surprise. You see the name Rahab. It's very surprising that Rahab makes the genealogy for two reasons. Uh, Number one, she was a woman, and in the ancient world, nobody included women in genealogies. It was just, it was just, they would list father after father after father. They would list man after man after man. And Rahab is not only listed, she is the first of several women listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus came into a world that treated women poorly, terribly, and he elevated them. Nobody's done more to elevate women than Jesus. But the reason most people would not include uh, Rahab is not just because she was a woman, but because uh, Rahab uh, brings uh, prostitution into the family tree of Jesus, into the bloodline of Jesus. When we're introduced to Rahab in the book of Joshua, she is referred to as uh, Rahab the, the harlot, Rahab the, the prostitute. I mean, if you wrote your resume back then, okay, you're not going to include this in your resume. You're not going to say, well, in my family uh, background, there's prostitution. I had a great-great-grandma who uh, was a prostitute. She had a booming business, and she made a lot of money. You're not going to do that. Nobody would include that. But Matthew says that's how Jesus got here. It's part of his family tree. And then it mentions Judah 
and Tamar. Judah and Tamar are the parents of two boys named Perez and Zerah. Judah's the father. Tamar is the mother. And you're like, okay, what's so, what's so strange uh, about, uh, about that? That doesn't sound that uh, strange. But I'm going to tell you that uh, this is a scandal. Okay, this is scandalous, like what you would see, a scandal like you would see on uh, Netflix. And uh, you're like, come on, Ben, tell us. I don't, I don't want to tell you about it, but you're like, come on, tell us about it. Uh, tell us more. You whet our appetite for uh, scandal. So I'll tell you a little bit about the scandal. If, if you want, you can read, read more about it on your own. You can, you can look it up in the, in, in the Bible. But I'll tell you just a little bit more about it. You're not going to like it. Judah Judah was Tamar's father-in-law. Yeah, this would be her, her, uh, her husband's father. I mean, that's twisted, isn't it? That, 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 that's messy. And, and what's really surprising is Matthew didn't have to include Judah and Tamar. He didn't need to go back that far. He just needed to connect Jesus to David. He could have just stopped at David. You know, just talk about David. And now we get to David, and every good Jew in that day would have said, good, because to sit on the throne and be the Messiah, he's got to be related to David. And I understand that, but the genealogy, again, goes a little further. It says, King David, the father of Solomon, look at this next part, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And so he connects Jesus to David, but he brings up a previous marriage. That's not even relevant. Most people would just say David, the father of Solomon. Everybody go, okay, he's eligible. He's qualified to be the Messiah. But instead, he brings up Bathsheba without even using her name. He calls her the wife of uh, Uriah. And so uh, this, brings up, uh, this brings adultery into the family tree of, of Jesus, into the bloodline of uh, Jesus, because David had an affair with uh, Uriah's wife named Bathsheba. So David, this man, this great man, this great leader, that you know, everybody would have wanted to be related to David. Now we're reminded about his uh, adultery. But as long as we're uh, talking about uh, uh, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, let's go ahead and go to the next branch because, uh, because Uriah uh, brings up uh, murder. Merry Christmas, everybody. Murder. Yeah, right here in the family tree of Jesus. Because David didn't just fail when he had an affair with Bathsheba. He failed when he, when, when he covered, it, covered it up. Uriah fought a, a battle. David should have fought. But instead, David stayed home in bed with Uriah's wife. And then he covered it up by, by uh, having him put to death. Having Uriah put to death. And he blamed it on battle. And so now, look at this. We've got prostitution and scandal. And we've even got adultery. And we've got murder in the genealogy, in the bloodline, in the family tree of Jesus. And uh, this is, we're not even to the top of the tree, if I can reach this. It's not a star. It's not an angel. Merry Christmas, everybody, from idolatry. Right here goes into the family tree of Jesus. Because two of the people listed in the genealogy, Ruth the Moabite, Rahab the Canaanite, both of those groups worshipped other gods. They lived as enemies of God's people. But Matthew includes them and and uh, he doesn't just show that Jesus is related to David. He, he, says, he says Jesus doesn't even have pure Jewish blood pumping in his, in his veins because there was some intermarrying that took place. No Jew would have wanted to broadcast that information. But Jesus proudly does because Jesus owns the messiness and the twistedness of his family tree, which is appropriate if you think about it because humanity is lost 
because of a tree, because of something that happened on a tree much earlier in the Bible. Reminds me of a story I came across in the news. Maybe some of you heard about this story. It happened in Australia. This woman put up a fake tree in her living room. And then one day, she's spending some time appreciating the tree, admiring the ornaments, and she recognizes something on the tree she doesn't remember putting there. Uh, see if you can recognize uh, which one doesn't belong, you know. <laughs> ornament, 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 serpent. Yeah, right there. So she steps back. She calls animal control, which is a good thing. They come out. That's a tiger snake in her uh, Christmas tree. She took a picture to put it on uh, social media, and it just showed up all over the world. And what does that picture remind us of? Genesis chapter 3. God tells Adam and Eve, don't eat the fruit from this one tree. But the serpent came to the woman and said, surely you will not die. God told them they would die if they ate of of, of of the tree. And the serpent said, that's not true. God's holding out on you. God doesn't want you to have any fun. God wants you to stay ignorant. It says, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. Adam and Eve choose to bring into their life what God promised would bring death. And in that moment, they died. And those of you familiar with the story right now, you probably want to raise your hand and go, no, they didn't die. They live for many more years. That's, that's correct. But there is more than one kind of death. There is physical death, and then there's also spiritual death. I, I think the difference is made clear with a connection to Christmas by Adrian Rogers in his book, Kingdom Authority. Look at what he says. Follow, see if you can follow this. Adam was, a, was very much like a Christmas tree, cut off from its roots, brought into the house and decorated. In some ways... It may look better in the house than it did out in the world, out in the wild. But what happened when it was cut off from the source of life will show sometime after New Year's. The truth of the matter is that it's often called a living tree, but it was dead when it was cut off from the source of life. And so it is with man. Just like Adam, sin separated us from God. Sin brings death. Uh, the, The kind of death described in that explanation where we are disconnected from God's life and God's light. Sin creates this gap between us that we cannot cross. That's why Adam and Eve had to be banished from the garden, and we've been trying, we've been trying to get back ever since. And so they begin to die physically at that moment, but it took some time, like that tree, like that tree in your, in your living room, for it to show up. But this connection, this connection from God, this spiritual de- death, explains why all of us, we have this deep longing this emptiness, this ache, this groaning that the world cannot satisfy. And so we say, you know what, I'll just, make a, I'll just get a bigger pile of money. I'll get a really nice car. I'll get my body in shape. I've got this great job. I've got this great, great spouse. I can have everything that the world has to offer, but I still have this emptiness, this ache, this, loaning in, this, this uh, loneliness inside that the world cannot satisfy. That's, why, that's because the scripture says that we were created to know God and disconnected from God. There's always going to be something uh, missing. And here's the problem. We're dead spiritually, but we're dying physically. That's true for, for all of us. That's true for every one of us. You know, we all have some uh, differences. We, we wear different styles of clothing. We, we probably we have different hobbies. We like different music. Maybe you like 
rock, some of you like rap, some of you like jazz, others of you like country. We'll pray for, for, we'll pray for you uh, who like uh, country. We all have some differences. We all have different styles. But here's what's true for every single one of us. All of us are in a process that eventually will lead to the grave. It might be cancer, it might be a car accident, it might be a stroke, but the only thing certain about life is that it will end. And to die physically dead spiritually, we remain stuck. We remain distant from God. We remain separated from God. The Bible calls this hell. But that's not what God wants for you. That's not what God wants for me. That's why the moment after Adam and Eve ate that apple, when God gave out consequences, he didn't just give consequences to Adam and Eve. God turned to the serpent. God turned to the devil, and he made a promise. He made a prophecy looking forward to the birth of Jesus. Look at what he said. God says to the devil, <clears throat> he will strike your head, and you will strike his, his heel. And a head wound, far worse than a heel wound. In other words, God says, I'm going to crush the serpent. I'm going to crush the devil. I'm going to crush sin once and for all. And God made good on that promise that first Christmas by sending his son Jesus into the world. What I'm really trying to say is God's gift to us, it, it, it didn't go under the tree, it went on the tree. The, the Christmas child, the Christmas baby, born of a woman, at the perfect time, God's gift to us is, is not a, it's not a, it's not a present, it's not a gift card, it's a person. It is his son. That's the, that's the power of, of Christmas. That's what Christmas is all about. Jesus, the Christmas baby, comes into the world and he lives a life and he goes to a cross where he dies and he pays the penalty for all our sin. That's what Christmas is all about. First Christmas is not really a holiday. It is a rescue mission. Jesus came to seek and save lost people. That's why he didn't just die for you. He died as if he were you. When he went to the cross, God transferred all of our sin onto Jesus, and he suffered, and he died as though he had personally committed those sins. Peter puts it this way. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. Christmas is about Jesus dying on the cross. But he didn't just die. He resurrected three days later. He ascended to heaven. And now he knocks on the door of your heart. And if you let him in, he, he can forgive you. He can heal you. He can change you. That's why, that's why he came. And he walked this world He walked this world with the blood of, of a prostitute, with blood marked by scandal with the blood of an adulterer, a murderer, an idolater. That's why he died as one of us, so that he could say to you, I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. I have entered your pain. I have entered your shame. I have entered your disgrace. He says, are you an adulterer? Are you an idolater? Have you lied? Have you taken a life? I don't care, because I died for your sins. I, I became what you have done. I have done died and made the full payment to forgive all your sins and heal you. That's why Christmas is for everyone. It's for shepherds. It's for wise men. It's for carpenters. It's for single mothers. That's why River Glen is a come-as-you-are church. The doors of our church swing wide open to welcome 
everybody. And you know what? This is just one side of the family tree of Jesus. The other side of his family tree is much shorter. I don't even need to put a verse up on the screen. It's, it's, it's real short. It's one word, God. Uh, God came down. Jesus is fully God and fully human. And that's why on the cross, with one hand, he can reach out and take the hand of sinful humanity. With the other hand, he can reach over and take the hand of his father. And he can bring together that connection that we lost. He can bring us back to God. He can bring us to heaven. He can bring back everything that was lost that we could never get back on our own. That's why Jesus is not a a good way to heaven. He is the way, the life, and the truth. Only one who is fully human and fully God could do what Jesus has done. And this leads to a really important question. Would you like to make a decision to give your life to Jesus by following him? Would you like to have your sins forgiven? Would you like to go to heaven when you die? Would you like to live this life with with faith and hope and joy, able to do all that he has planned for you? Because Christmas is not just, you know, going to heaven when you die. It's about having heaven in you while you live. Because when you make a decision to follow Jesus, you receive the power of his resurrection, and it gives you the ability to not fear the grave, to not fear the casket, to not fear the funeral home, to not fear the the, the cemetery, to know that just as Jesus rose, you will rise. But you've got to accept him. And nobody can make that decision for you. Your brother, your sister, your friend can't make that decision for you. Your parent, your parents can't make that decision for you. God will not violate your free will. Sometimes people will ask this question, "Will, will God really send someone to hell? Let me tell you, he won't force you to go to heaven or to hell. He gives you the choice. You have responsibility for your soul. And so in a moment, we're going to bow our heads, and I'm going to say a prayer. And during that prayer, I'm going to pause, and I'm going to give you the opportunity to to respond and make a decision to accept Jesus and follow him. And then after I pray, we're going to pass communion trays. Our communion is open to everyone who says yes to Jesus because Jesus is for everyone. Christmas is for everyone. And so communion is for everyone. The bread represents Christ's body. The juice represents Christ's blood. Now, would you go ahead and bow your head with me? Some of you might think, I've made too many mistakes. I've had too many failures. I'm too messed up. But that's why Matthew didn't hide the family tree of Jesus to show that Jesus came for everyone and your history doesn't have to determine your destiny. But maybe you've never made your own decision to accept Jesus or maybe you did and you drifted away from him. Hey, why don't you, why don't you make a new decision today? And then we can look back at Christmas 2018 and say that was the day, that was the time That was the season when my life changed. God, I I pray that everyone in this room, I just want to lift up everyone in this room. And I pray in our our hearts right now that that we say yes to to Jesus, to his birth and life. Yes to his sacrifice and resurrection. And yes to to the new life that he gives. I'm going to pause for a moment, and uh, why don't you just pray silently and say, Jesus, today I have decided to follow you as my forgiver and leader. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. 
and raising from the dead. Thank you for giving me a, a new life. If you prayed that prayer, let us know so that we can encourage you. And uh, we want to celebrate with you. There's a welcome card in the seat back in front of you. There's a, little, there's a spot where it says, Today I decided to follow Jesus. Fill that out and drop it in the offering bag later on. And if you really mean business, if you want to show God that you're really serious about this, take your first step of obedience. You could begin 2019 by being baptized in Jesus. Let us know on the card. We'd love to do that for you. God, thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for your amazing love that would go to such an extreme measure to, to rescue us and bring heaven to our lives now and forever. God, thank you for the family tree of Jesus and how it powerfully, uh, clearly communicates this is for everyone. Thank you for the birth, life, and the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus. And thank you for the new life he gives to everyone who makes the decision to accept him and follow him. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.